Australia is waking up. What you consume, how you get from A to B, where you choose to shop. These everyday choices matter, and who you bank with does too. Shape the world you want to see. Join the bank with clean money. Search Bank Australia. Hey there, it's Nathan on the Dumbo Feather podcast, wading through the muck that is locked down here in Victoria at the moment. Fortunately, I've got great content to focus on and distract me. And a bit of a spoiler, we are working on a music issue of Dumbo Feather magazine, which has been so much fun to put together. We've got Bernard Fanning, Shelley Morris, the Dusty Esky Choir. We've got jazz, percussion, music from all parts of the world to delight in. So I'm putting the finishing touches on that now and it'll be out in mid-July 2021. On the podcast this week, we hear from Fiona Armstrong and she's the Executive Director of the Climate and Health Alliance. These legends exist to highlight the health impacts of climate change, believing that if the health sector leads on climate advocacy, then decision makers and the public will act because we care about health and trust health voices. That's certainly true of what we've witnessed during the pandemic. Early this year, the Climate and Health Alliance released a fascinating study titled Australia in 2030, which presents narrative scenarios of five possible futures for our country. Fiona talks about those scenarios, as well as her work in climate and health advocacy with Dumbo Feather contributor Mike Bartlett. So it'd be great to talk to you a bit about your background. We'll mainly focus, obviously, on Australia in 2030. But let's start by talking a bit about the Climate and Health Alliance. I mean, it's interesting to me that these are two concepts, you know, climate and health, that aren't actually put together that often. We often think of the environment being something quite separate from us, don't we? Yeah, I think people do tend to. It's interesting, the research in Australia on this issue, which does show that unless that connection is made quite explicit, people don't tend to notice it. But when you do talk about climate change in a health frame, It does mean that people consider it in more of a personal and an individual context and it becomes immediately relevant rather than distant, far away in time and space. Also shifts it from being something that affects the broader environment to something that might affect you or your family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the research shows that when you do make that connection explicit or talk about some of the health agencies like World Health Organization and their concerns about climate change, the penny drops for people and suddenly it seems completely obvious and they wonder why they haven't thought about it before. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's a way of individualizing the issue, making it feel very intimate and immediate to people, which is particularly important, I think, given that it's an issue that can often seem quite distant, that the, the consequences are you know 10 years away rather than 10 days away. Yeah, perhaps that shifted a little bit for people in Australia over the last 12 months or so, particularly with the unprecedented bushfires on the East Coast. And we had that terrible smoke haze that was around for months and months and many people really badly affected. 4,000 people went to hospital during a period of those few months with smoke-related health conditions. And I think that brought it home to people 
that the consequences of climate change are here and now. They're not distant and in the future. And they do have really significant impacts on health. Not only the kind of deaths and injury that occur from extreme weather, but the mental health consequences associated with trauma or loss of homes and livelihood or having to be evacuated. And not just health in terms of our own personal health and broader population health, but health services impacted as well. I mean, we had a situation in Canberra where there were MRI machines that malfunctioned and weren't able to be used because the particles from the smoke pollution caused some of their mechanisms to jam and they went out of order. So, you know, it's pretty serious. We had smoke in cities in Australia that was many times hazardous levels. At various times during that period, the air quality in Sydney and Canberra was the worst in the world, and not just for a short period, but days and weeks on end. I did wonder, looking at the launch of Australia in 2030 and looking at the conference, everyone's having to wear masks, which was very much the done thing this year. Last year, 2020, we began having to wear masks in Melbourne because the air quality was so poor as a result of the bushfires, as you mentioned. Do you think that this, while it might seem counterintuitive to be focusing on the climate in the middle of a medical emergency, do you think people are, as you say, more open to connecting the dots between health and the climate in the wake of this past year, not just from the smoke the fact that we've then gone through this global health crisis? Look, I think that's possible. I mean, absolutely health is much more prominent in people's minds with the COVID-19 pandemic. The ironic thing is, however, that circle that we've gone around in from one health crisis to a different health crisis actually both have climate change at their core. The COVID-19 pandemic and coronaviruses being zoonotic diseases. These are exactly the kinds of diseases that scientists have been warning about will be exacerbated by climate change. So the connection between those things is that we're already experiencing a massive biodiversity crisis with human activity encroaching on wild natural areas and we're impacting on other species and causing them to be unwell because they're losing their habitat, they're losing access to the foods that they traditionally eat, they're being forced into compromised environments where they may not have access to everything that they need to flourish. And by trespassing, in a sense, into native habitats, whether it's through urban development or mining or other industrial activities, where it's coming much closer to those animals, which makes it much easier for diseases to jump from animals to humans. So that's what we've seen here with the coronavirus. So climate change worsens the conditions that contribute to biodiversity loss. So our activity in terms of development and deforestation And then those things magnified by global warming, which also is causing ecosystem decline, is all coming together to create this perfect storm where we've got outbreaks of disease at the same time that we've got these extreme weather events that are reinforcing these negative cycles. Mm. So, as you say, in many ways, the coronavirus pandemic illustrates that link between health and the environment that we're going to be seeing more. This is not a once in a lifetime or a once in a century event. This is possibly just the beginning of the kind of crises we might be facing as environmental damage, as climate change accelerates. Yeah, absolutely. And 
one of the most fundamental threats and one of the reasons why we should be paying attention to climate change. It's far from being just an economic or an environmental issue. It's really undermining all of the conditions that are required for human flourishing, clean air, soil, water, all of those things are absolutely essential for health and well-being and seen very visibly in the coronavirus pandemic just how incredibly important public health is and when we have a threat to public health it can really undermine our economic stability. Mm. I think there's also something in the response to the pandemic that is interesting in regards to climate change. A lot of the denialism that we see around climate change expressed itself when it came to the pandemic response. So you had people claiming that the pandemic was a hoax, that masks were ineffective, that lockdowns didn't make any difference. So they were really arguing against the science. Do you feel ultimately that watching that kind of response play out in a different context regarding a health issue, do you think that will lead to more trust in science and the health officials, or are we just stuck in this kind of world where there are facts and there are alternative facts? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, both of those things, denial of the science, whether it's in relation to climate change or the COVID pandemic, have a common cause in a way, don't they? And that's misinformation and disinformation, which is deliberately generated and one of the common associations with that is the ownership of media by corporations with an agenda whose interest is really only in profit and not in the distribution or trade in facts. There's a common playbook that was written by the tobacco industry, picked up by the fossil fuel industry when it came to the science of climate change. And this has been promulgated through media to the extent that people are really confused about what is real information and what isn't. And that disinformation comes from the same part of the media again and again. What's been different in the response to those two things, however, is that on the one hand, the fossil fuel misinformation and denial of science and muddying of the waters when it comes to climate change science has effectively eroded political will over many decades. But when we were faced with a public health threat, largely our politicians around the world have listened to science and responded not always as quickly as they might have and not always as comprehensively as they might have, but they have largely listened to the science. And we've been the beneficiaries of that in Australia in that we've had a very strong public health response and our political leaders have been very clear about the fact that they're taking their lead from the science and as a result, we're the winners as a population. Here in Victoria, we have no COVID cases at the moment, which is a pretty extraordinary position to be in when you look at the rates of deaths and illness around the world. Mm. I think that's a really interesting point, that uh, this is a case where the government did listen to science, I guess, again, because the problem was quite immediate rather than distant. And it's absolutely paid off for our political leaders, hasn't it? I'm talking to you from Western Australia, where the Labour government's just been re-elected in a landslide. They really went to the election with very little in the way of policies. They were entirely trading on the popularity of their extreme response to COVID. You can see that when governments do actually take action on a crisis, they are rewarded. It's been interesting to watch WA and the response, and I guess in part that might reflect, as you say, concern in the community about the risk of COVID getting out of control if those restrictions were lifted. 
like elsewhere in Australia, an older population who are at higher risk of contracting COVID are very pleased to see governments do whatever it will take to keep them safe. I guess the disappointing and slightly frustrating thing about climate change is that we are all exposed to the risks of climate change, also in the short and immediate term, although they're generally regarded as being longer term. And unfortunately, there's still these conversations about very long timeframes that we have to act on climate change as though as long as we act by 2050, that will be enough. And there simply isn't yet enough people in the broader population who understand the very complex picture that is climate change science, understanding the cascading tipping points that we're approaching with accelerating global warming and actually a very short window within which to act to avert those before they become irreversible and spiral out of control. It is frustrating because the health impacts of climate change are right now. We're seeing this incredible flooding in New South Wales, the horrific bushfires. Throughout that period, a very persistent and record drought, which is leading to massive loss of agricultural land and the huge impacts that that has on people who are working on the land, producing food, caring for animals and watching their livelihoods dwindle away before their eyes with a changing climate and the mental health costs associated with that with massive increases in farmer suicide. These are not things that are distant or far away. These are things that are happening right now. Sometimes in cities, we imagine that we're buffered from the effects of wild nature. But as we've seen with some of the floods, urban areas are equally vulnerable. We're all exposed to air pollution, which is produced by the same activities that are producing greenhouse gas emissions that are driving climate change. A warming environment makes air pollution worse. So in the presence of warmer temperatures and sunshine, you can volatile organic compounds that are produced from burning fossil fuels, driving petrol or diesel cars in the presence of sunshine and warmer temperatures produces ground level ozone, which is a very serious respiratory irritant and can affect the lungs of quite healthy people. Mm. As we've said, Australia in 2030 is trying to bring home this sense of immediacy to perhaps counter this idea that climate change is a problem for the future. I mean, 2030 obviously is fairly short term from where we're standing. Can we start just by talking a bit about what Australia in 2030 actually is? It reads like a, you almost call it a manifesto. It's not quite a report. How would you describe Australia in 2030? Well, we wanted to use the period of disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic to really take the opportunity to reflect on what a massive disruptive event meant for the world and what we needed to do to avoid those kinds of events in the future. So it's a chance for a lot of people who weren't engaged in having to meet immediate needs, whether that was income, healthcare, etc., is a chance for some people to step back and think about what the future might look like. We recognise COVID-19 caused a massive social and economic disruption, that a lot of investment was required for us to come out of that, and that that investment was really an opportunity for us to set a course for the future that might be different to the one that we were on track for already. 
So it was really about thinking what are the possible alternative futures for our country and for others and what are the decisions that we might make that would change the course that we take. So there's a lot of thinking going on around the world about this Lots of institutions, the UN, World Health Organization, calling for a healthy green recovery, recognizing that this was a unique opportunity for the world in investing trillions of dollars in recovering from the COVID pandemic, that we had an opportunity to put us on the course to tackle an even bigger problem, which was that of global warming and climate change. We know that we need to act in a short time frame. So when we started this process of thinking about alternative futures, we didn't want to be stretching it out to 2050. We don't want to encourage the thinking that we can kick the can down the road until then. We know that we have a very short time frame to act. And whilst the climate conditions will be largely the same, regardless of what we do in 10 years, the outcome further down the track could be very different. So we have the potential to create different futures. We wanted to encourage the thinking that the future is not fixed, that it is up to the choices that we make as a community. We used a process which is quite an internationally recognised process of scenario development, looking at four possible alternative scenarios. One where there's no change, so no significant change to the current trajectory. There's another which is marginal change. There's another which is maladaptive change. So you might try to make changes, but maybe there are some wrong choices. And then there's radical transformative change. We reached out to people who have a lot of expertise in this space. So Professor Sahail Anayatullah, who's a UNESCO Futures Chair, And I reached out to him when I read an article that he wrote in the immediate aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic being as a pandemic. And he described a few different alternative futures arising from COVID. So I reached out to him and asked for some advice about this. And with his support and with the support of a colleague of his, Dr. Colin Russo, we developed this process where we invited over a 100 thought leaders from many different disciplines across Australia to come together in several different occasions, principally three roundtables over six weeks, two weeks apart, to talk about possible alternative futures and to populate those scenarios, no change, marginal change, maladaptive change and radical transformative change with all their ideas about what they might look like and the considerations that we were using using the Stiegel framework that I think a lot of people are familiar with when it comes to strategic planning and you're looking at doing a map of your ecosystem in which you exist and looking at the social, technological, ethical, environmental, governance, legal So that meant that we were applying that lens to all the ideas that we put forward to populate each of those scenarios. So it was a really rounded picture. That was the process that we used. People were joining from around the world. I think people were very hungry for the chance to just let their imaginations run free and to use this process to really think deeply and creatively about the future and to test those ideas in an environment where there were many people from many different perspectives. Some of the scenarios are not comfortable to consider scenarios that we developed for no change, head in the sand, marginal change, short memory, maladaptive change, looking for love in all the wrong places. There's some really uncomfortable 
things about those scenarios that don't make for pleasant reading. And I would like to talk about those in more detail as we go through. Yeah, but they're important because they're possible. Mm. And it was very important that we did create that suite of options so that people do understand that history is no analogue for the future and that staying a course just because we're on it doesn't necessarily mean that it leads to the outcome that we want. And we need to deliberately choose and make decisions to achieve the outcomes that we want. In the radical transformative scenario, there's a lot more investment in bold and courageous decision-making, leadership, and there's a strength of purpose about the choices that we make. And the outcomes are incredibly different. We're really hastened to emphasize that these are all possible. These are scientifically, politically, socially, technologically feasible. We've tested them with our massive think tank of 100 thought leaders. So they are possible. Whether or not we get there depends on the choices that we make. Right. So it's not just, you know, pie in the sky or blue sky thinking. This is concrete thinking. It's what's possible. Even the most positive or utopian outlook is is one that is within reach. Yeah. Yeah. We talked when we began about that link between the environment and health. And I know Australia in 2030 starts with a graphic that links societal health with planetary health, the healthier our society, the healthier our planet and vice versa. I wonder what you meant by societal health and what it takes for societal health to improve. Well, I guess we're talking about health in a complex way. We're not just talking about individual health. We're talking about broader social, societal, population health and health that is influenced by many different things in society. So considering social determinants of health and recognising that our health and well-being is influenced by our access to education, the availability of a safe and comfortable place to live. It's dependent on having healthy and productive relationships, having access to satisfying and rewarding work. It's that picture of health that we're trying to paint and linking that with planetary health and recognising that refers to human health being linked to the health of the planetary systems on which we depend. So our goals around achieving a better future in both of those spheres. Yeah. Obviously, this is a document is designed to bring about change, to encourage people to make a choice between these alternative futures. But how much responsibility do you think we should be feeling as individuals for bringing about that change? On an individual level, does it mainly lie with electing leaders who are actually capable of leading us to to one of the more positive futures? That's a really good point. And I mean, where does the responsibility lie? Well, I think the answer is it lies everywhere. We all have a responsibility to do what we can, start where you are with what you have and do what you can. I think that that's an important thing for people who are feeling powerless in the face of what can seem like a very overwhelming threat, climate change. There is a lot that we can do to improve our own lives and to contribute to the broader effort. Absolutely, it does take those bigger levers and a larger societal effort through policy change, the activities of business. Commitments from governments at all levels are absolutely critical of where to get to where we need to be. Government can not only prescribe change for large industries, but change behaviour at the local level as well. 
there's a responsibility of government in investing in an enabling environment so that people in the community whose behaviour does need to change, there's a lot that governments can do to create enabling environments to change behaviour that implemented across a whole population can have a massive impact so that we go beyond those voluntary efforts of those who have the capacity or the will to make the changes themselves. But then, of course, it's those bigger impacts on the behaviour of industry and their responsibility around reducing emissions. We absolutely need interventions from government at all levels. Mm. I guess, again, with the recent COVID pandemic and the response to that, we've seen that individual behaviour can be influenced when government lays out the new rules or lays out the guidance. People won't necessarily wear masks because it's the right thing to do. But if you legislate or if you make an emergency declaration that it's legally required, then people's behaviour does change. Yeah, I think it's partly about rules, but it was partly about leadership as well. And I think that's been the one of the really interesting and instructive things about COVID is that we had signaling from government. We had quite prescriptive rules that we had to follow in order to keep the community safe. In reality, it was leaders taking charge, providing clear messages about the behaviour that we needed to engage in, and that sense of confidence and trust that somebody is in charge and is making the hard decisions that I think led to this outbreak of cooperation that we saw, you know, which is really what it took. And it was giving people the opportunity to think about the fact that their own individual well-being depended on the well-being of others. And I think in many instances, people were really grateful for that opportunity to do their bit. I think in lots of cases, people felt good for whatever sacrifice they were making because they knew that it was for the greater good. It would be really nice to see that translated into action on climate change where we say, yes, there are some sacrifices that we need to make, but this is for the greater good and the outcome is better for everybody. Mm, an outbreak of cooperation. I like that. <laughs> you know, and it's, I think it's something that you discussed in one of your scenarios. And I would like to talk a bit more about those. The first one, as you've said, is the no change. It's the same as it ever was. No policy change, no shift in behavior. This is the one we're heading for right now, isn't it? It is. We bury our heads in the sand, refuse to acknowledge the scale and urgency of the problem and fail to take appropriate action to respond. That's exactly what we're seeing right now. We've got escalating climate change, ever-increasing urgency in the tone from scientists and governments sitting on their hands. We are seeing some leadership at the state and territory level and they are recognising that they need to do some heavy lifting in the absence of federal leadership, but nowhere near enough. Head in the sand means we just get more of what we've got now. So climate fueled extreme weather events, rising social anxiety, ongoing political apathy. People are very disillusioned with the political system. And all of those things combine to worsen already unstable social and environmental conditions. It's not a pretty picture. Mm. And what you've touched on at the end there, societal collapse, is again something that's perhaps overlooked. There's the focus on, oh, well, things are just going to get a bit hotter. Maybe we'll need to crank up the air conditioning a bit more. But the disaster is going to be on every level, isn't it? 
Yeah, we are talking about 2030, so we're not saying we're going to see whole-scale societal collapse in that period. But the reality is, as the scientists keep emphasising, we do only have a short window to respond to limit warming before we do reach tipping point. We've seen what's happening around the world in terms of social unrest and all of those things get worse when things get hotter. There's contests over water, contests over food, contests over jobs, contests over land. Yeah. The second scenario is not a whole lot better than that. It's your maybe later scenario. And you talk here about how, for those in power, the rush post-COVID has really been to just get back to normal, to return things to how they were. Governments which tend to operate on four to five-year plans, those sort of governments have a lot of difficulty tackling something that requires a long-term strategy, don't they? Yeah, maybe later is quite a good title too for the one that we call short memory. It is about what happens if we fail to heed the lessons from the recent past. There are some things that we can hold on to that have been really positive from when COVID first emerged, really investing in social welfare, making sure that we bring everybody together, really addressing some very deep systemic social inequities. The removal of JobKeeper now is going to open up that gap again. So what we would imagine in this scenario is that whilst there may have been some advances, we don't pay attention to the lessons that are available for them. So we revert to small government strategies and ignore those social and economic benefits that happened. Be reminded that we can think differently. We need to learn from those lessons and change course. Mm. And your third scenario is one that perhaps I found most convincing. It's the maladaptive one, isn't it? Making decisions that simply address the surface issues, which tend to be led by choices that will make money, such as investing in unproven technologies, but not ever really addressing the root causes, which all sounds familiar. Well, that's exactly right. It is somewhat familiar in that we do see knee-jerk policy responses policies developed and implemented in a bit of a thought bubble without consideration of the longer term consequences or what might be the unintended consequences associated with that. And whilst in this scenario, looking for love in all the wrong places, we're not doing it in a very considered way. We haven't invested in or embraced or seen strong leadership We see an erosion of our identity. We lose track of who we are in the world and that can be very paralyzing and makes people feel disempowered. Even though we recognize that we're on the verge of a powerful tipping point and that we could make change, we don't and we panic and start throwing money at unproven schemes and technologies. There's an unwillingness then to cooperate, perhaps a decline in what might have been an emerging bipartisanship between governments. Listening to you talk about this maladaptive approach and taking surface action, but that doesn't address the root causes, it's not impossible to draw parallels with what's happening in Canberra at the moment with misogyny in Parliament and an attempt to perhaps take very limited action, but constantly having then to realise that the root causes aren't going away, that there's structural change that's actually necessary. Do you do you see any parallel there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think what we're seeing are the consequences of a culture that's existed for a very long time that clearly people knew a lot about, but were unwilling to call it out. So there's really been a bit of a head in the sand approach to a misogynistic culture across society. So 
can only hope that with lots of those things coming to light that it's going to be impossible to continue to sweep them under the carpet and that we are going to see some change and change is possible it's necessary it can be powerful and we are frightened of change but I think when we have a positive experience of change it can be very emboldening and I guess that's where we were trying to go with our fourth scenario right which certainly is more positive this is a scenario where we make the right decisions and start heading down the right path we start seeing people making positive decisions about their health but not just in terms of how they eat but also in terms of how they use technology don't we Yeah, that's right. Because we've come into it through following a period of reflection about the type of future that we want, it means that we're applying that lens to many different aspects of society. And we start to think about how we can make technology work for us rather than the direction we're heading. We're becoming slaves to the digital world. And so there's this concept of digital dignity where we have more control over how technology is used and it's used in ways to enhance our connections with others and there's safeguards to protect us from some of the dangers that currently exist. Right. The final and most positive of your scenarios is labelled My Island Home. This is a bold new strategy that sees us depoliticise the issues around climate change and recognise really the importance of solidarity, I think, that we're all human Do you feel that Australia is still open to that sense of commonality or have we become too polarised? I absolutely believe we are open to that sense of commonality. I think at our deepest core, it's what humans crave is connection with others, satisfying relationships with others. COVID has helped us to understand what that means in a more tangible sense than previously when we might have been caught up in the whirlwind of the 21st century world and we were all forced to slow down a little bit and begin to appreciate what's valuable in life and those small pleasures that we were able to enjoy in our preferred integrated scenario, Our Island Home. There is really an emphasis on the fact that we find common ground and that's across all parts of our society but at a very deep and important level it's about recognising historical wrongs and we haven't talked much about this in our conversation to date but a thread that really was woven through all of the scenarios was our relationship with Australia's first peoples. I did want to talk about that because this scenario in particular starts by acknowledging our wrongs. You link justice for First Nations people with climate change action. Why have you taken that approach? Well, I think there was a recognition through the scenarios that we cannot move forward as a nation productively without doing this, that there is an incredibly important reconciliation process that needs to happen before we can really move forward as a country. So this scenario is not just about improving lifestyles for everybody. It's a better life on every level, who we think we are as a country and having a common understanding of that. And that means that we need to learn from, acknowledge, to listen to the wisdom of First Nations people. We've been ignoring the insights of people who've existed in this land for millennia including through many different periods of a changing climate. There's a connection to this land that we need to acknowledge and respect and value before we can really appreciate who we are as a people and move on together. 
that we think carefully about how we design our future. We're not looking for love in all the wrong places and just throwing money at different ideas. We're having solid think about what true progress looks like. And we find ways to enshrine that in our governance structures and in our laws. So we're talking about having a well-being budget, for example. So we're really prioritizing things that matter, but we commit to staying the course. We listen to the broader community so that the direction that we take is informed by many different voices and not only those that are privileged. And then we invest in the things that we know are going to deliver a healthier society. We're protecting our land, protecting agriculture, investing in regenerative systems. Mm. To get to our island home, to reach that best possible future, the first step is deciding who we are. Yeah, that's right. It's about proceeding with our eyes open to the challenge. We can't pretend that these challenges aren't deep and complex. But if we do face those complex challenges with courage and humility and generosity, that helps to set the right conditions for us to make them in a democratic way within a meaningful time frame. Mm. Each of these scenarios are accompanied throughout Australia in 2030 by little vignettes, these imagined case studies of people living in one of these five futures. These are worlds in which COVID trauma still looms, where megafires make regional business almost impossible, where heat waves cause mass death. How important is this storytelling element, do you think? We wanted to anchor these stories in a context that anybody can understand. So people who are working on complex social and political issues, we hope will really find the scenarios and that broader description about the characteristics of society and economy and environment helpful. But for them to really resonate with people at the personal level, we felt like it was important to situate individuals in that scenario in 2030. So we chose two for each scenario. So there's 10 case studies that tell the story of people from many different parts of the country, different geographies, different educational backgrounds, different cultural and political backgrounds that would just help to illustrate what it was like to be a person alive in 2030 in that scenario and what the daily experience might be. Mm. Looking at these five scenarios, these five alternative futures that you've outlined, which of them feels most likely to you at this point? Oh, I'm an optimist. (laughs) I love our island home. I think that there's a lot about that that people hunger for. I think many people recognize that as a human society, we've lost our ways in terms of choosing directions that are meaningful, that work for everyone. We've also gone to the trouble of developing a roadmap to that preferred future. That work is called healthy, regenerative and just. And I think those three concepts in that title capture the direction that we need to take. And we've mapped out under eight areas of policy action, a whole range of very specific steps that governments at all levels, business industry and the community can take on to help us get there. So we want to maximise the chances that we will make those choices by providing a roadmap which has got the solutions on how to get there. Mm. If we don't make it to your ideal future, which of these scenarios do you feel you could live with? Oh, probably not any. You know, we can do this in our island home, righting wrongs and deep reflection. And again, I'll emphasise they're possible. They're in reach. They're, They're within our reach. Fiona, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. 
thanks, Fiona, for sharing that extraordinary work with us. You can learn more over at the Climate and Health Alliance website, caha.org.au. This episode was edited by the guys at Yaga and Cheshire Audio. And if you'd like to stay connected to our work or subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine, go to dumbofeather.com. Bye for now. Have you aligned your bank with your values? Your everyday choices make an impact. And where your bank does too. Search Bank Australia to join the change.